Welcome to episode number 183 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, and I'm so thrilled today because we're going to, we're going to be talking with Brian Solis, who is really one of the most prolific and well-known speakers, authors, analysts, talking about user experience and digital transformation. So this is an exciting show. Brian, how are you today? I, uh, I'm, I'm excited. I, I can't tell you how long I've waited for this moment to be, uh, to be on the show. And, and uh, I'm just, thank you. Well, thank you. And it's definitely way overdue. So Brian, just to establish some context, tell us very briefly about your background and the things that you do. All right. Well, briefly, I am a digital analyst at Altimeter, a profit company. I study disruptive technology and its impact on business and write a lot of research around digital transformation and innovation uh, and also the future of experience. Uh, I am also an author. I've got a new book out called X, The Experience When Business Meets Design. And uh, I also am an aspiring digital anthropologist. X is such an interesting book. It's so I wish I had a copy here to hold up and show people. It's completely visual. But when you talk about X and you talk about experience, tell us what it means for you in this context. Well, I, I just happened to have one. Oh, I'm th- there. I <laughs> maybe I don't have one, but I actually put one aside just in case. Uh, Look, there's there's a great sense of irony in writing a book on experience design uh, in the digital economy. Uh, <laughs> so I spent I spent several years, actually three and a half years, studying basically digital behavior. This the digital anthropologist in me had observed how consumer expectations, behavior, values, uh, aspirations were all changing, and that is a result of technology's impact on society and on us and relationships and communications and. I decided to reimagine what experience design could look like in this era and applied a lot of those insights to paper as a metaphor for the journey that we all have to go through today as executives, strategists, you name it. Uh, and so the book essentially looks at the very core of what an experience is, how it becomes meaningful, uh, and then how to go b- about designing the types of experiences people want to have and share in every moment of truth throughout the customer lifecycle. I want to remind everybody that as we talk with Brian, there's a tweet chat going with the hashtag CXOTalk, and you can ask Brian your questions, and he will answer. It's a rare opportunity to get direct answers from Brian Solis. So, Brian, when you're talking about uh, experience and you were writing this very, very lengthy book, what were some of the key things that you learned along the way? Oh, I, so so much, so much, Michael. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. It was a very humbling experience because I, I, when you go to the core of what an experience is, you have to let your guard down. You have to assume that you don't know everything and then build from that. And starting with the reimagination of what a book could be in 2016, what sentences could be, paragraphs, chapters. I mean, you have to you almost start from scratch. Uh, and this is sort of an ex- exercise in design thinking in many ways. Uh, so, some of the things that the book teaches you, like human-centered design, for example, 
what I learned is that you can take nothing for granted and make no assumptions. Uh, and, and that starts with the checklist of what you normally do in your day job. Uh, and that, that was inspiring and also debilitating at the same time. Uh, but I'll never do I'll never take anything normal for granted again, especially in an era where anything could be reimagined. Uh, and that's, that was a personal journey for me. And I hoped that I translated that into a book so that it's a journey that we go on together. And, and look, it's, it's just one of those things that it's a beautiful book, but every aspect of that design, uh, the reimagination of a table of contents, for example, the refabrication uh, of chapter structures, uh, sentences, visual, visual communication, uh, everything about it was a, a demonstration of here's what I went through and here's how it relates to what you're going to go through as well. And I think every business has to think about how are customers or employees or stakeholders or shareholders different today than when business was erected 60, 60 years ago or so, the, the, the models that we use today, uh, and, and see where we could be innovative, not just iterative. Like, where could we really do new things that create new value. Why is experience such an important and talked about topic today? Why does it matter so much? <laughs> so, so many answers for you, Michael. I, I, there's, there are those answers of which I think people uh, rely on a bit too heavily. So let's talk about customer experience because there are many facets of experience design, right? Customer experience, user experience, employee experience, brand experience. Every one of them has their own schools of thought, but ironically, every one of them also has their own silos for work. And as a result, you, by default, just by the nature of the design of an organization, you inhibit the ability to integrate or deliver a holistic experience in any in any type of facet you want. So just kind of throwing that out there and now let's back up into what the right answer should be. The right answer is an experience is not something you start with. An experience is something you start by studying. And it's a very empathetic approach and no no offense to to people or practitioners out there. I mean, but it's empathy is the one thing that's lacking in organizations today because it's simply not designed to really operate that way. Uh, and when you start looking at how people experience you, that is where you start to see the problems, identify friction, identify gaps, and then how people react in those instances teaches you about how people are actually experiencing the experience. And so when we start looking at it from an empathetic standpoint and also one that's both intellectual and emotional, we're supposed to be inspired to then design experiences and then an infrastructure to de deliver those and manage those experiences in ways that are more meaningful. So if you take the customer journey, for example, that is probably one of the number one areas where customer experience is, is taking off or, or at least adopting. We tend to look at the customer journey through a facet of touch points and uh, I don't know, say touch points and devices, but we're not really looking at, well, how, how do you have a relationship with your mobile phone? And how has that changed decision-making? How has that made you a little bit more impatient? How has that changed the questions that you ask? How has that changed where you go for information? Uh, how has that changed the way you want to see or view or experience information? And when you start looking at things that way, you realize that you can improve the customer journey through iteration. And you can also introduce a highly modernized and efficient 
journey through innovation. So when we look at the customer journey through those touch points and those devices, as you described it, and we then overlay the importance of listening and empathy, as you were just talking about, it seems to me what we realize is that the customer journey, the definition of a customer journey is not the same as creating an experience for that customer. That's well said. Well said. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, and that's, and that's, that's where people have a hard time sort of getting into true experience design work, right? I mean, we can, don't get me wrong, improving the customer journey is, is absolutely important, but taking an empathetic approach to this and introducing opportunities for innovation to unlock new experiences requires a lot of work. This is uh, one of the reasons why as an analyst, I study digital transformation. How are companies changing from the inside, both operationally, process, systems, you name it. But the biggest challenge, Michael, is perspective. How to get executives to see the market differently rather than just bring the set of things, your checklist, the way you work, your operational standards, your metrics, how to think differently in these moments to do things differently uh, and to design experiences that are meaningful to a different generation of customers, a different generation of employees means that we can't assume that we understand what they want and then try to design what they want. Brian, you know, it's, you're, you're, you're laying a lot on us here right now. And one of the issues that um, I'm just thinking about is it's, I think organizations fall back on the design of, as you said, their, their customer journey. But the real piece that's so important, again, is that listening and that empathy, but in being able to put themselves into the customer's shoes. But, and that's, the, that's a part of the foundation of digital transformation. But how can an organization, a typical organization, institutionalize that, make, enable themselves to do it on a more regular basis. It's easy to define a journey, very hard to define how you have empathy for the customer. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, the, uh, the, the, re the research I'm doing on digital transformation right now is less about the digital part of transformation and more about the human side of change. I mean, at the end of the day, what we're really talking about is change management, but even change management takes out the, the EQ from, from, from the equation, right? It's, it's how do we, how do we allow ourselves to be empathetic uh, in a, in a, in a culture that doesn't necessarily uh, allow for it. Uh, and at the end of the day, it starts with culture. It starts with people who are willing to take the gloves off and start, start fighting the good fight inside because they do feel it. Uh, and then they have to start changing inside the company of how people appreciate that information. It's one of the reasons why big data is, you know, not necessarily as appreciated as it could be. It's not why it's implemented across uh, all the, the entire organization. It's one of the reasons why we have silos today. It's just businesses by design, meant to scale, to be efficient so that we could report progress to shareholders and stakeholders and quarterly <laughs> timelines and not 
empathy has a hard, you know, empathy is asking you to go backwards in, in order to move forward. And that's the hard part. I, you know, and this, this, Michael, is one of the reasons why when I talk about experience design, that's one thing. I have to balance that with digital transformation so that if you want to design these great experiences, you could probably do them um, in, in, in pilots. I could tell you that one of the biggest audiences for this book has been startups, <laughs> just because they don't have to work through you know, all of the, the craziness and, and legal uh, and risk-averse cultures. But the digital transformation stuff, for example, I published a report called The Six Stages of Digital Transformation. And that is also meant to balance this work with telling you exactly how companies are changing for this. So what are the components of digital transformation? And, and please weave in this objective of creating the right type of experiences for customers. Well, it's, it's a journey in, in its own right. You know, I think there are, there are some things that begin, you know, when you look at the, the hierarchy of priorities, uh, you have to fix the basics first. Um, and fixing the basics is... It's, it's, it sounds it sounds commonsensical, but I, it's 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 very difficult to get there. But the basics are all the things that you know are broken that you just can't get to. But lack of budget, lack of resources. But you know we can't go and design great experiences if we can't actually manage the experiences that are broken right now. And at the end of the day, then if we can't do that, then how are we supposed to innovate and move forward? But just the conversations that you have while you try to fix what's broken takes. I, I say in practicality, you have to be a cheerleader, you have to be a lawyer, you have to be a politician. Um, and those three things, for example, uh, a lawyer gets the data and the evidence. So this is one of the reasons why journey mapping is so important. You could, you could actually not only show what's broken, you could show what it's costing you in terms of opportunity cost. And then uh, to be a politician, you have to bring the right people together behind the scenes, people who don't talk to each other, each other or collaborate with one another uh, and get them to make these cases uh, and, and, and expand that scope. And then a cheerleader is, is because this is hard. This is emotionally daunting. You're stepping outside of your ask, right? You're stepping outside of your role. You're putting your neck out. There are people in the organization today who want to sabotage everything you're going to do because they do not want to change. They enjoy comfort or they just don't like change. Uh, but at the end of the day, if we don't do these things, your competitors are or your competition that no one saw coming will have to have no choice but to introduce new new value, which, by the way, this is one of the reasons why I talk about iteration, innovation, and disruption. I think a lot of companies that are investing in digital transformation from a technology standpoint, so IE led by IT, isn't necessarily solving for the real issues. And so you tend to get iteration at best, which is doing the same things better. Innovation is doing new things that unlocks new value, and disruption is doing new things that make the old things obsolete. So the issues that you are describing, the need to have a, a coherent strategy and the budget and getting the people organized, this implies that you need to have a, a combination of top-down leadership, so leadership has to be behind it, and you have to have grassroots support at the same time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, 
you have to have support. And, and here's what's interesting is that your, your validation and your early support is actually going to come from your peers before it comes from executives. Yet, in order, and ironically, in order to get digital transformation to really have legs, to, to accelerate, you have to get executive support. So there's this sort of groundswell, this almost like uprising within the organization, but done in a politically correct way uh, to really get executives to see things the way that you do. And this is also one of the things that I've learned. Uh, I have this research report that I've been working on for a good couple of years now that there's almost like an art of being a change agent. Um, and one of the things that I hear quite often is speaking the language of the C-suite. So we might see things a certain way. We might be passionate about technology. We might feel how technology is changing us. But at the end of the day, executives uh, don't live the company the way their customers or their customers' customers do or the way that their employees do. This is why you have a television series called Undercover Boss. It's just that there's some point of disconnect between how executives operate and how people want to be treated and recognized and grow. And when, when any executive has that, you know, what I'll call the undercover boss moment, it's essentially a gift of empathy, right? They feel it. They say it. I forgot what it was like to be an employee. I forgot what it was like to do these things. And then that's when real change can happen. But you have to be able to communicate to them in ways that they don't see. Their audience is stakeholders and shareholders. They, they make decisions off of PowerPoints, graphs, reports. They, they, they talk to analysts. They, 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 they do all of the things that you're not doing. You're, in, you're on the front line. You feel, you see, you do. And you just have to take all of those insights and communicate it to a way that's going to benefit them, you know, so bottom line, impact, market share, growth, you know, the numbers that they need to see, the way they need to see it helps your case uh, more so than not. We have a question from Twitter from Jill Rowley, who asks, can Satya Nadella change the culture of Microsoft and how long is that going to take? It's crystal ball time for you, Brian. Let me get my crystal ball. Hold on one second. Here we go. <laughs> oh, and you happen to have one. <laughs> uh, well, Jill, first of all, it's wonderful to hear from you. Uh, I think for everyone that doesn't know Jill or those who do know Jill, you, you will agree that she's quite uh, quite a powerhouse, quite amazing. She's been blazing the trail uh, in her field for quite some time. So with that said, uh, the yeah, I think he will change the culture. I think he's already started to change the culture. Um if you think back to, oh, I don't know, that famous interview with, uh, let's just say, a Microsoft boss who's no longer there, uh, when he was interviewed about the potential impact of the iPhone when it first debuted, he said, ha, 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 ha. a phone with no buttons? Come on, that's never going to work. Full retail price of $600? Ha, ha, ha. I mean, he literally laughed it off. It's one of the most obscene interviews I'd ever seen from, from a chief executive. Uh, and we all know what happened after that. Such as come in in a very humble way uh, to assess and see opportunities, apply some vision to what's possible. And he's got a really roll up your sleeves kind of way of getting people to believe in what he wa wants to do. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. Microsoft has a lot of work to do. Uh, and I was just there speaking about X to a lot of their their uh, employees across different facets of the organization. And, and they all they all feel that there's a real need to do this, but they're still there because they believe in the opportunity. And I think Satya is somebody that you could 
you can rally behind and they've already made some great progress. It's just, you know, you have to intentionally want to design a better culture for an organization. And, and he does, and he's explicitly said so that, you know, but, but Jill and everyone who's listening right now, this is one of the things that I think employee experience is the next big thing. I think that culture design uh, is the next big thing. Uh, and I think they're quite explicit, intentional and uh, require architecture. Uh, the reason I, I've, I've written a couple of research reports on this over the last few years. I have an ebook coming out with Gaping Void on the subject to, in a very jovial way, get you to see how, what we don't see today in terms of the value of culture. But it's squishy and it's elusive, and we still have to fight the fight around customers, you know, and the fact that they need better experiences. Uh, but I really do think this is the next big thing, and this is, I think, a 10-year a 10-year transformation on it. Brian, you you talk about change agents and we've spoken about culture. When I talk with chief digital officers, especially in large organizations who are leading the digital transformation effort, virtually unanimously they say that the technology is easy compared with the culture change. Can you talk a little about that and, again, link in this notion of experience? So how does experience intersect that transformation and the culture change? Well, you're right. Technology is easier. Uh, it's one of the reasons why digital transformation on the early side, where I talk about business as usual and uh, you know, just basically some of the early stages in the six stages, uh, it's one of the reasons why technology is the, the place that people start. Uh, and the reason that they start there is because, you know, IT is a thing. CIOs have a job to do. Information architects have a job to do. There's probably a three to five year roadmap on where the company needs to go and how technology is going to get them there. Uh, then they have to implement, they have to train, and they have to support, right? It's a whole, it's a whole thing. So it's easier to do it in that regards because companies, companies do have to modernize how they work. But then where things get philosophically interesting is when we say, okay, we have to modernize how we work, but what does work mean in 2017? And what does collaboration and communication look like? How do people want to work? How do people define happiness? How do people define their aspirations? And you start to realize there's a whole slew of things that don't align at all with that roadmap. And this is where it gets hard, and this is why it's a later stage in terms of maturity. But at some point, you recognize that in order to get there, you have to take a human-centered approach. And, uh, well, for example, customer experience is one of those catalysts to, to force transformation from a person or a human perspective uh, to then use technology as an enabler uh, to change. It has to have a purpose. Once it has a purpose, it, 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 it comes to life totally differently. We hear, along with experience, we hear this term engagement. So we hear about customer experience and we hear about customer engagement. What, what are the distinctions? How are these the same or different? Well... One of my first books was called Engage. Uh, <laughs> so you've gone from Engage to Experience. Yeah, yeah. And uh, today I, I talk about engagement in a different connotation uh, because like experience, when you talk about engagement, 
we tend to, as professionals, apply our thinking, our ourselves first uh, before the person we're actually trying to reach. Um, same as with experience. This is why when we talk about experience, we don't actually look at, well, how are people experiencing us today and what's the gap from our brand promise? I call that the experience divide. The same is true for engagement. I call it an engagement gap. Uh, I, in fact, I have a research report on this that you could just Google up with my name and engagement gap. Uh, it talks about how we think about engagement from a way that we define it. So for example, we are communicating to you, Michael, therefore you are engaged. But if I were to ask you, do you feel engaged by your company? No, no, I don't. Well, how do you define engagement? Well, I define engagement by the way that people talk to me, the way that I want to grow within the organization and be appreciated within the organization. Oh, and that's interesting because that's a gap. And what the research report found was that there was a significant gap. It was a, it was a quantitative uh, report that looked at both executives and also employees. Uh, and, and it comes down to semantics, really. Uh, once you understand that there is a gap and you realize that the way that you define engagement is not the way that people want to be engaged, you start to solve for it, just like the way you define experience versus the way that people want to have experiences or the experiences that people value are different. So it's a shift in perspective. It's essentially a shift from information architecture to experience architecture. It's a shift from you know, making assumptions to empathy. It's, it's, it's a difference between designing based on meetings and listening to the highest paid person in the room and taking a human-centered design approach to design was actually going to be meaningful and valuable. And this is why uh, there's a famous uh, philosopher, uh, novelist, who uh, once said, you know, we don't see the world the way it is. We see it as we are. Uh, and that's what has to change, and it starts there. Can you systematize the components of an experience? How do we how do we design the right kinds of experiences, and how do we know that we've actually do, done it? How do we know if we've succeeded? So somewhere, somewhere in this book, this is the the revised uh, table of contents. It, it's meant to sort of mimic the apps of how you have them organized on your phone. Somewhere in here uh, is, is a framework for exactly what you're asking. It's very complex, but, it, but is, there is a systematic approach to designing experiences, starting with understanding the evolution of expectations, behaviors, and preferences, and values of your core communities, your markets, not just who you reach, but also who you could reach. Um, and because there's a lot, there's a lot there, right? If you get big data purpose as well, there's a lot that you could learn and there's a lot that you can interpret. Uh, and then there's a lot that you can start to pilot and make the case uh, as you go along the way. Um, but it's, it's also, Michael, very complex. Um, it's very political. Uh, and though there is a process for it uh, and it starts with, and, and, and my, my inspiration by the way, designing this framework was very difficult because there wasn't one. I really thought I was just going to be able to borrow from some some of the the, the existing stuff uh, out there. So I borrowed from all sorts of human or user-centered approaches from like user experience, for example, or IDEO's work or Red Associates' work in, in, in uh, anthropology to put together a framework that was going to allow you to borrow from great disciplines to apply it into your work in a, I don't want to say simple, but a, a very pragmatic way 
to not do everything overnight, but with every step you take, you're actually building the supporting infrastructure, gaining momentum, gaining support along the way. Now, as much as I want you to buy the book, uh, there's also a, a research report called The Opposite uh, Framework. Uh, so you could just Google that and, and the word opposite and my name, uh, and you, you'll find a report uh, that you can download for free. Uh, it, it is based on about four years of research looking at how companies were changing around the modern customer experience, or the DCX as it's called. Uh, and the opposite framework stands for the eight best practices that companies do in order to spark change to take a user-centered or a customer-centric approach to customer experience, which is ironic that you have to take a customer-centered approach to it. Uh, and then uh, what, what, what to do next, but it's all based on their best practices. So the complex part, or let me ask, let me, instead of saying, let me ask as a question, what is the complex part? You say it's political and it's complex. Why? All right. So it, it's, it's, it's everything. Like, for example, the number one, the number one challenge uh, in 2014 when I studied the state of digital transformation was the company culture just did not encourage me to start learning new things or doing new things. Uh, in 2016, uh, I have a report coming out uh, in a month about uh, it's just an update on that report. Number one thing is, is really trying to understand the new customer or the new employee. Um, culture comes in, of course, but just because there's a there's just a lack of appreciation or a lack of infrastructure for that appreciation to really understand what's different and what to do about it. And so when I published the six stages, the six pillars that were based on a lot of these challenges were governance and the lack of leadership, right? So things like risk aversion, things like legal-led uh, uh, decision-making, compliance, regulation, you name it, uh, people and operations. So politics, egos, uh, self-destruction, fear, uh, the lack of customer experience, so not understanding people, the lack of infrastructure supporting data analytics across the enterprise, um, the slowness of technology integration uh, and relevant technology integration, and then the lack of digital literacy. Uh, so there is a great misunderstanding of all of these tools and how they work in society and business and why they work in society and business. And so uh, there's, there's a, in 2014, I also wrote a research report that had a great infographic that showed on one side, all of the challenges facing change agents and digital transformation. And on the other side, all of the catalysts driving it so that you could see the counterbalance uh, and all of these things, by the way, are, are, are tools that you could download for free, but they're all written from, well, with the intention of documenting what is, but also what could be, I'm a very, I'm a very optimistic person. And so I often don't see what I hope to see in a lot of my research and, and write about those possibilities. And there's people there who then take those ideas and bring them to life. And then I come back and study their progress, like Bridget Dolan or, or um, uh, uh, Adam over at, at Starbucks, uh, you know, who's, who's Starbucks first uh, chief digital officer. These are people that in turn inspire me to then push the research forward so that we all you know, create a rising tide. So with all of these different pieces and the difficulty associated with digital transformation, when you talk about organizations like Starbucks or, or any other that's doing it well, what are the characteristics or the lessons that we can learn from them? You know, Adam Brotman, for example, once said that 
our our digital transformation has just begun uh and they've they've they're in many ways i want to say they're like it's a word i used to use it's now a buzzword which is entrepreneurs but it's it's almost like they're hackers <laughs> in a sense uh, in that they they want to get something done they're so passionate about getting it done that they hack their way to get it done and and a lot of times Michael, that's what causes the political issues. You know, uh, people gun for them when they start doing that. So luckily for Bridget and Adam, for example, they had cultures that supported that. Uh, But in many cases, change agents complain about the minute they start doing those things, they put a target on their back. And the question is, could they move faster than that arrow or the arrows that are coming at them? (laughs) So it becomes a uh, a really interesting thing. But they are really building infrastructures around the pilots and the learnings and the insights that they get to continually test and learn. So for example, the company will be nameless, but uh, I've heard this on several occasions on very progressive B2C and B2B companies that they're, they're creating new models that involve marketing, IT uh, and data, for example, in its own silo. Uh, since it can't necessarily span all of these other groups, they'll start working as an internal skunk works just to get things done. And they go make the case and have to plead that, you know, listen, we're not going to get anywhere if we have infighting, but we're going to get everywhere if we at least try. I talk about digital Darwinism uh, over the years, which is, you know, technology and society evolve. It's just a fact. But operations and perspective and processes and decision-making hasn't kept up with that. And so these guys that are, these, these folks that are fighting for this uh, in even increments, uh, you know, digital transformation favors those that at least try, right? I mean, this is, you have to start somewhere, but look, I know that's a long winded answer to the question, but I think at the end of the day, um, leadership, or let me just put it this way. Change doesn't come from leadership initially, right? Uh, if you're waiting to be told what to do, you're on the wrong side of innovation. A lot of times it starts with these individuals, right? Adam Brotman did not start out as a chief digital officer. He earned that role. Uh, and Bridget Dolan didn't just lead the, they now have a, Sephora has an innovation center in South San Francisco. She didn't just become the innovation person. She earned that by pushing boundaries and pushing possibilities forward. It's hard. And in this change agent report I have coming out, people will tell you that they all have this, this thing, this drive, this desire to, to do the right thing. And they've recognized that the grass isn't always greener on the other side, that the same politics and, 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 and fear and, and risk aversion exist in many, many, many businesses. And so sometimes it's just better to push forward and gain alliances to create alignment in the process. But it seems like the successful change agents, as you're describing, also they have the ability not just to hack their way through the weeds, but to push forward in a way that is not pushing too hard, because if they push too hard, the organizational anti-innovation antibodies will push them out. So how do you balance that? What is the balance? Such a good visual. <laughs> Should be a cartoon, actually. Uh, what's the balance? Uh, it comes back to the, the politician uh, thing that we talked about earlier with cheerleaders, lawyers, and politicians. The, um, there's, there's 
there is greater, well, I don't want to say greater. Everybody does things their own way, but there's a common pattern of creating allegiances or alliances with people outside of your department or your organization uh, to find ways because there, there are people who want to change the company all across the company, finding them, befriending them, collaborating with them outside of just the stuff you have to do to then gain an audience for an executive sponsor to show that you're working together, that these are the things that you are able to discover. These are the things that you feel that together you could accomplish. Here are some of the initial areas where that could be applied. Those are the types of things that get people bought in. Uh, I'll share a little preview from that research, which they all say the same things. They're all very, very wise individuals. They figured out that your greatest ally is at first among your greatest enemies. Uh, This is work. This is politics. This is probably war, uh, (laughs) anything uh, and everything that sometimes the best thing you can do is just listen to the people who don't want what you're trying to work for uh, so that you you can then translate what you're trying to do to their benefit, right? Because it's not going to help anybody if the company fails. Uh, And sometimes just listening or being heard uh, is a good place to start feeling you're usurped or gone around. Or, I mean, that's, that's where you start getting infighting in politics and what have you. But look, it's not as easy as that, right? Because sometimes people will, will tell you, um, but then they'll go back, you know, behind your back and, and try to, completely derail what it is you're working on. But I think the more alignment you have, the more people you listen to, the more people who start to get bought in, start to realize exactly what's happening. Uh, and by the way, a culture, I, I tend to try to take uh, in some, some regards, very, very vivid uh, definitions of things like culture, for example, are not just, it's not just defined by your promise and, and your aspirations as an organization. It's also defined by the bullshit that you put up with in the company and that you don't, you don't contend with. Uh, and a lot of times the people who derail uh, progress or, or potential for innovation are part of the problem of the organization itself, right? It's part of those antibodies. And uh, the best thing you can do is, 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 cut that out, but that's, that's, that's rare and far between. So change agents who are great politicians, cheerleaders, and lawyers are the ones who bring everybody to the table and work with them as equals. I love what you just said. Uh, listen to the people who don't want what you're selling. What incredible advice that is. I, 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 so, Diane, thanks, Michael. I, I, I it's hard as a digital analyst studying digital transformation to talk about the things that, uh, that the people, the, the people factor. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just every single time I, I go into an organization, this is, this is the case, uh, except for more progressive companies. Um, and then, you know, people want a gun for Amazon. People want a gun for Starbucks. People want a gun for Tesla. And, you know, or Samsung, for example, gunning after Apple. I mean, yes, it's part like cool phones and it's cool televisions. But at the end of the day, there's just a different respect or perspective or interpretation or appreciation of human beings in some of these more successful companies, both inside and outside of the organization. And that 
That's why I think culture is the next big thing. You cannot, everything that technology is teaching us today, I call us accidental narcissists, that it is teaching us that we're at the center of the universe. It's part problematic, but it's also part, uh, part opportunity. But we have to recognize that. We tend to judge it first, and we tend to sort of disregard it or be skeptical about it. And in reality, the more you understand the human nature of it, you can, you can lead it, right? But you're not going to lead it if you react to it or if you push back against it. It's just, it's, just, it's just difficult, Michael. So this is why I'm trying to publish and push as much as I can to help uh, provide air support for the people who really, really need it. Again, I love that phrase, accidental narcissists. It's so it's so evocative. Uh, we we just have about five minutes left. This time has gone by very quickly. And can we change gears for a moment? You are a quote unquote influencer, and everybody is interested in that concept. And so, can you give us some some insight, some advice? on approaching working with influencers such as yourself and others? Well, you're an influencer as well. Uh, and I think you, you know, tell me if you agree with this. Um, I, I define influencer, again, I try to have these very vivid definitions. Um, in the same way, I def- the dictionary defines the word influence. Uh, and that is the ability to cause effect or change behavior. And then I would look at influencers, catalyst to one of those or both of those things. Uh, and so if I, I don't look at myself as an influencer, however, I look at myself as a student. It's the only way I learn. Uh, I, I, I both learn and also the biggest and hardest thing uh, I learned over the years was how to unlearn <laughs> certain things. And I think that's true advice for anybody. Um, but for companies that want to learn how to work with, with influencers, I think it starts with sort of appreciating their work, uh, the relationship that they have with their communities, how they got to be an influencer, um, why their communities value them, and then find ways to align that with the value that anybody else wants to, to put into that machine or that human machine, if you will. Uh, I could tell you that most companies do not do anything close to that regard. They just want you and me because of the audiences we have. Uh, but I think if they, if they want the secret tip, that's how to do it. And in our last couple of minutes, uh, please summarize your accumulated thoughts and advice for people who are wanting to help drive change inside their organization and are finding it tough, really hard to do. So what's your advice for these folks? Look, in, 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 in the few minutes we have, it's, it's honestly not enough time, but I am writing a dedicated report to that very question because I hear it all the time and I promise it's coming very soon. Uh, we're, at the, we're at the tail end of those interviews, but I will tell you this. Many of us grew up in a time where we were told to follow the rules, to not ask questions, follow the processes, to not stand out. Otherwise, we'd be whacked like a mole right back into place. Uh, And therefore, we were ingrained and conditioned not to challenge anything, not to challenge the status quo, to be part of the status quo, that you were going to be measured, your successful career was going to be defined by how well you operated within the status quo. But now now that's all getting obliterated. It's just happening for many reasons. Uh, And I'll just leave you with this. I 
didn't start to gain momentum in my career until I started to do just that, challenge the status quo, but not just challenge it, find ways to help others succeed in it, to bring people along with you that were being held back uh, and just were too afraid to do something. But it's hard. It's scary. Um, it's not the comfort zone, but I promise you that that comfort zone that we're so comfortable in right now is eroding and we need people to be influencers, not be influenced right now. We need, we need more people trying new things. I think you just said the magic word for success of change agents, which is challenge the status quo, but help make sure others succeed. No, I, I, it's, 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 it, we got to do this together. That seems like that seems like it's the magic combination right there. You have to challenge, but at the same time, if you're not doing it with the goal of helping others succeed, then you become that quote-unquote accidental narcissist that you spoke about earlier, and you will just nobody will listen. That's right. That's right. In fact, that's I'll just leave it there. That's perfectly said, Michael. Well, this has been, we've just, uh, we've been talking with Brian Solis, the author of the book X, which is really a great book. The first time I saw it, I was in an office and it was sitting there on a coffee table quite just when it was released. And I was browsing through it and it's this big, thick book that's completely visual. And I thought to myself, wow, just the amount of work that it must have taken to put it together was incredible. And so, Brian Solis, thank you so much for being our guest today on CXO Talk. Oh, thank you, Michael, for having me on. And thank you, everybody, for listening. If you need anything, reach out at, at Brian Solis on probably every platform. And, and I hope you take a look at the book. It would mean a lot. You have been watching episode number 182 of CXO Talk. This coming Friday, we are speaking with Stuart Sackman, who is the Combined Chief Information Officer and Chief Technology Officer of ADP which is one of our largest, one of the largest companies anywhere. So I hope you'll join us on Friday, and thanks so much, and thank you to Brian Solis for joining us today. Bye-bye, everybody.